This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Philippians. What is particularly damaging potentially to a church is when those in leadership or those in a role of influence like deacons are not getting along. That can become damaging and divisive to a church. Whatever they're disagreeing about, we don't know again, whatever, but whatever they're disagreeing about, it has risen to the level where Paul knows about it. It's become public in the church, perhaps even outside the church, and so Paul has to address it. Can you imagine being called out by the Apostle Paul for a disagreement you had? That happens a couple of times in the Bible, and today you'll hear about one of those instances. And it would be easy for us, centuries later, to look at these dissenting church members and feel superior. But are we? Pastor Gary reminds you that there's still a lot of division in the church. People want to hold tighter to their opinion than to unifying with one another. Maybe there's something to learn from this ancient disagreement. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of Philippians chapter 4 with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. Let's take our Bibles and let's turn to Philippians chapter 4 as we take a look at this last chapter here in the book of Philippians. And I will tell you, as we read verse 1, it really should be a part of chapter 3. Chapters were added to the biblical text around 1205 AD. Originally, when the writers penned the words of Old Testament and New Testament, there were no chapter separations, there were no verse delineations. This was all written by uh, freehand and paragraph separations, but not chapter. We added chapters many centuries ago because it helps us to find different places in the Bible. So don't worry, the chapters and the verses are not inspired by the Lord. It's just kind of man's way of saying, here's where we can find the text. And many Bible scholars believe that the first verse of chapter 4 should have really been the last verse of chapter 3 because the flow of the thought continues. So we'll read it, though, verse 1 of chapter 4. Therefore, my brothers, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, that is how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. So see, that that really is attached to chapter 3. Chapter 3 is where he's talking about in verses 12, 13, and 14 about uh, pressing on uh, to take hold of the prize for which God has called him heavenward in Christ Jesus. He talks about running a race with perseverance, not giving up, but receiving ultimately the crown uh, that the Lord has intended for him, and not for him only, but for all who would believe. So he talks about this prize. He talks about the ultimate reward of heaven. He talks about, you know, when, when God calls him home, he's going to go home and, and receive his ultimate reward from the Lord. And so all of that encouragement from chapter 3, and that's why chapter 4, verse 1, he's really building on that, saying, okay, having said all that, therefore, my brothers, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, that is how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. Now, by the way, he's going to use that phrase, in the Lord, two other times here in chapter 4. He's going to say there in verse 1, stand firm in the Lord. 
He's going to say in verse 2, agree with each other in the Lord. And he's going to say in verse 4, rejoice in the Lord. So he has this theme going here in chapter 4, which is, you know, our lives should be about in the Lord. We should stand firm in the Lord. We should agree with each other in the Lord. We should rejoice in the Lord. It's all about Jesus. It's all about the Lord. And so he's going to draw our attention to that, to that theme as he makes his way here through, through chapter four. But he comes here to verses two and three where he pleads with this church about unity. So I'll read verse two with you. He says, I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, help these women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Now, he mentions these two women by name. Uh, their names are, again, Euodia and Syntyche. These are, these are Greek names. These are Gentile women. They are uh, learning about the faith. They've come into faith. In fact, they are probably deacons in this church because Paul mentions there in verse 3 that they have contended at my side for the cause of the gospel. Now, there were in the early church, and there are even here at Cornerstone, there are men and women who serve as deacons in the early church. They were first raised up in Acts chapter 6 when some of the uh, Greek Jews were complaining to the Hebraic Jews, to the Hebrew Jews, that their widows were getting overlooked in the daily distribution of the food. In the early church, you know, they had to pool their resources and come together because when people uh, turned to Christ and put their faith and trust in Him, in the first century is a dangerous thing. I mean, your life could be required of you. And if you were a Jew, your fellow Jews who did not believe that Jesus was Messiah would ostracize you, cut you off, and in many ways, you would, you would, could become destitute because nobody would buy from your business anymore. You would get shunned, you would get blacklisted, and so the early church had to pool their resources. That's why you see in the book of Acts sometimes the indication about how they, they, they pooled their resources together so that everybody who had need had their needs met through this collective resource. Don't get the idea that this was socialism. This was never a pattern in the early church. This was only done out of necessity. Okay, the New Testament speaks strongly about a strong work ethic and working hard. So this is not socialism in the book of Acts. This is survivalism is what it is. They had to pool their resources to survive. And as part of the early church growth and development, taking care of each other, the, the, the Jews who were Greek said to the Jews who were Hebrews, our Grecian widows are getting overlooked in the daily distribution of the food. So in Acts chapter 6, there was an initial group of seven men who were selected as deacons. And that's the first time you see they they were called ministers or diakonos in the Greek, and that's where we get our English word deacon. And their responsibility was to help in ministering to these uh, Jewish widows and to bring them food and to take care of them so that the apostles of the early church would not neglect prayer and the ministry of the word. That those two things had to be kept clearly in, in check by the leaders of the church so, so that they wouldn't neglect the word and they wouldn't neglect prayer to do the work of the ministry. But the work of the ministry is important too. 
And so then you begin to see deacons as a part of the lay ministry team of the early church. And so that's why even today we have, we have deacons. And now the word deacon is not a feminine word, so, but we feminize it and we say deacons and deaconesses. But really in the, in the Bible, it's just one word to describe the role that sometimes men and women uh, uh, served in, these, this diaconos role, the deacon role. Now in some churches, deacons are part of your governing leadership. But in the Bible, they were never really part of governing leadership. They were part of the serving ministry of the church. So we have some wonderful men and women on our care team. That's what we call our our group of deacons. And we're sensitive that men only minister to men, women only minister to women. You see in Romans 16, verse 1, there's a woman who's highlighted by the name of Phoebe, who served as a minister. That word is diakonos, deacon, in the early church. And it is likely, a lot of Bible scholars believe, that Euodia and Syntyche are both serving in that kind of a ministry role. They're not pastors. They don't have leadership role, but they serve as kind of the servant lay ministry position. Nevertheless, they had roles of influence. If you're a deacon in the church, or you're an elder in the church, or a pastor in the church, you have some sphere of influence. So they're in disagreement. We don't know what their disagreement is about, but what is particularly damaging potentially to a church is when those in leadership or those in a role of influence like deacons are not getting along. That can become damaging and divisive to a church. Whatever they're disagreeing about, we don't know again, whatever, but whatever they're disagreeing about, it has risen to the level where Paul knows about it It's become public in the church, perhaps even outside the church, and so Paul has to address it. So Paul has to, it's risen to that level where Paul has to address it, okay? Now, euodia in the Greek means sweet fragrance. That's what her name means, sweet fragrance. Syntyche in the Greek is actually suntuke, and her name means accident, (laughs) I'm just telling you what the the Greek says, friends. I'm just the messenger, okay? So, you know, who knows? Maybe Euodia was rubbing Syntyche's name in her face. I don't know. I don't don't know. We don't know what the argument was about. But it's risen to this level here. Now, disagreement is normal, friends. You're going to have disagreement in wherever you have more than one person, and sometimes even you can disagree with yourself. Do you know what I'm saying to you? It's not a very good, it's not a healthy thing to disagree with yourself. That's, that's kind of a split personality. But, you know, if you have at least one other person in the room, you're apt to have a disagreement because there's one more opinion. Now, you get hundreds of people or thousands of people in a church, and you, you can have hundreds of opinions and thousands of opinions. There's bound to be disagreements, just like there is in your family. Merry Christmas. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> You know, some of you know what's going to happen. You're going to get together for the holidays. You're coming together for Christmas. You're going to have family and friends together. And there's going to be some tension. There's going to be potentially some disagreements. And you know those topics that are off, that are off topic. You know, you just can't, we can't go there. Because you know, if you start talking about those particular topics with your family, there's, there's going to be family division. And, and that, that's where it becomes problematic. Like any disagreement, Disagreements by themselves can be normal, but when they become divisive, now you've got a problem. And just like that can be a problem in a family, that can be a problem in a church family. And Paul recognizes this, that Euodia and Syntyche have been disagreeing here about something, and and now it is at the point where it's divisive. 
So that's, that's when disagreement becomes a problem. When it becomes something that brings about disunity or division, now you got, now you got a problem. So disagreements, normal. Disunity, not. Disagreements, we can make allowance for differences of opinion. Division, no. And the Bible has some strong warnings about it. This isn't the only time Paul would point out in Galatians 5, 19 to 20. He lists the, the, uh, uh, just a small sample of the acts of the sinful nature. It's not an exhaustive list, but he lists several things in Galatians 5, 19 and 20. He says, the acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, listen, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions. All right, so even in a short list of of uh, things that Paul mentions in Galatians 5 as part of the sinful nature, you have discord, dissensions, and factions. It's part of our sin nature. God is all into math. He's into addition. Okay, He adds to the church daily, such as should be saved. He's, he's into multiplication, multiplication of the fish and the, and, and the, and the loaves. He's even into subtraction. There's sometimes there's a blessed subtraction and God needs to take some people and move them along. But he's never into division. God is never into division. In the church, you can see addition, you can see multiplication, you can even see subtraction. But division has no place. And so Paul warns about it, not just here in Philippians, Galatians 5, listen to Romans 16, verse 17. Paul wrote, I urge you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, another example. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another so that there may, may be no divisions among you and that you may be perfectly united in mind and in thought. So strong caution, many places in the Bible, not just here, about disagreements becoming divisive or something that breeds disunity in, in the church. So there's actually, I think, here within verses 2 and 3, some advice that Paul gives us about achieving unity in the church. And the standout phrases for me that, that I noted here in verses 2 and 3 are these phrases. He talks about in the Lord. We'll, we'll talk about what these mean in a moment. And then he talks about, he mentions some loyal yoke fellow help these women uh, some guy that he doesn't mention by name, we don't know who he is, and, and then he uses this phrase, whose names are in the book of life. So let me just talk about these three real quickly, because I think that this is good advice from Paul about achieving unity in the church. This should be our goal. And the first thing that he mentions there in verse 2, where he talks about uh, that, that he pleads with these ladies to agree with each other in the Lord. In other words, this, whatever the disagreement, Everything else is less important than the common cause of Christ. Okay, whatever the disagreement, that's why he uses this term in the Lord. You need to agree in the Lord. You will not always agree in Euodia or agree in Syntyche. You will not always agree with each other. But please, this is his pleading, this is important for every church to understand. Please, at the end of the day, realize that the most important thing is the cause of Christ. 
It should always be about Jesus and not about ourselves, which means that we should be asking ourselves important questions as it relates to unity in the church. Questions like, how might my disposition impact the kingdom? I mean, positively or negatively. But if, if we are taking disagreement to a place where now it's crossing a line into disunity and division, we have to be asking ourselves, is what I'm about, is what I'm doing, is the way I'm acting or the things I'm saying, is this, is this causing injury to the kingdom of God? Because it's all about Christ. And there is a watching world from without the church and within the church that is looking for unity as the mark that we belong to Christ. Again, not agreement on every single level. There can be pleasant disagreement, and that old phrase, we can agree to disagree on different things, but there had better be action and words that bring unity for the cause of Christ because the kingdom and the reputation of the kingdom is at stake. We need to represent Christ and we need to be able to put aside some of these petty differences for the cause of Christ. We need to ask ourselves things like what would give Christ or his church a bad name? What would cause division? Within, within the church, within the body of Christ. And if there's a check in our hearts about any of those things, how could this impact the kingdom in a negative way? Um, you know, in, in what way might this cause division? Would it give Christ a bad name? Then we've got to pull back the disagreement to a place where we surrender that to the Lord and we don't take it to a place of disunity or division. Now, he also mentions here in verse 3, this, this loyal yoke fellow uh, helped these women. He calls upon somebody in the church here, doesn't mention by name. He's going to mention another guy in a little bit there with Clement, but that's not who he was referring to uh, in verse 3. It's somebody, and he talks about a yoke fellow because the idea that we are yoked, you know, harnessed together like oxen are yoked together for the same cause of Christ. So he, it's, a, it's an affectionate term. He says there's some other brother in the church here. He calls him a yoke fellow, a fellow guy who's... Uh, on the same path that Paul is for the sake of the gospel. He says, help these women. Help these women. So I think it's just a reminder to us that sometimes uh, we need help from others in, in resolving differences. You know, there is a place within the body of Christ for some simple arbitration when two people just can't get along and, and they seem to be, you know, causing dissension and division and disunity because of their disagreement. There's a, there's a good place for somebody else to be involved in some kind of, of a, a, a peace agreement and serving like an arbitrator to kind of bring peace. So Paul is actually urging a particular person who's unnamed could you, could you sit down with these ladies and see if you could just bring some peace between them? Because their, their disagreement has spilled over now into potentially damaging the church. That's not a bad thing when, when people need to help those who are in disagreement to try to bring about peace. And then he mentions this last phrase, whose names are in the book of life. And he's including Euodia and Syntyche in this, as well as Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, that's how he ends verse 3, whose names are in the book of life. And I, I think that he's bringing it back to the book of life because at the end of all of this, he's basically saying that another way you achieve unity in the church is to always maintain an eternal view of things. You know, in the grand scheme of things, is this issue really that important? You know, have you ever... 
Have you ever looked at your life and maybe just within the context of a disagreement in a marriage or disagreement in a family, and have you ever stopped to just think, okay, look, if, if you were dying or if this person were dying at some kind of terminal illness, would you really be fussing about this? Because in the big scheme of things, is this issue really that important given the gravity of the situation? And, and I think that that's, that's what he's trying to remind everybody of here. Okay, you got these two women who are disagreeing. Can I get somebody to help them, please? And, and I plead with these two ladies, please agree in the Lord. And, and the word there is autos froneo, meaning uh, can you please be of the same mind? Can you please turn your thoughts in the same direction? Make it about Jesus, not about yourselves. And after all, please keep in perspective that this is an eternal, this is an eternal thing, uh, uh, that our names are written in the language. Lamb's Book of Life. This is about ultimately going to heaven. So probably when you think about that in that perspective, maybe the things that you're fussing about aren't all that important. I think it's, I think it's wise advice from Paul in helping us to achieve unity in the church. Well, he moves on now in, in the next section, really through the rest of this chapter, and he's going to give some closing exhortations here, and, and here they are. And don't worry if you can't write the list down, but um, I just kind of summarize the next few verses. He's going to talk about, this is, he, these are commands really, but I'm calling them exhortations. He talks about, he wants us to rejoice in the Lord always. He says, be gentle to everyone. He says, do not worry about anything. Pray about everything and think about the right things. That's how he's going to summarize this whole letter to the Philippians, and it's a, it's a wise word for us still today. He's going to give us these closing exhortations, these final commands, and he's going to basically divide all this into three categories that we'll see here as we go further in chapter 4. He's going to talk about your prayer life, he's going to talk about your thought life, he's going to talk about your way of life, and he's actually going to model this for us. He's going to talk about our prayer life because he, he's experienced this in his prayer life. He's going to talk about our thought life, because this is where he is in his thought life, and he's going to talk about the way of life, because this is where he is, and this is his perspective on, on how to live out your life for, for the glory of God. So we're going to take a look at these three sections uh, one by one, and let's, let's start first with, with your prayer life here in verse 6. And um, sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. Uh, look at verse 4 before we get down to verse 6. Verse 4, he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. All right, so here's verse 4. This is that common exhortation about rejoicing in the Lord always again. I, I say rejoice. And I asked this question last week about how many of you remember singing that in Sunday school. I know I, know I did in, in Sunday school as a little kid. And they would divide the class in rounds, and you'd sing it in rounds. And it was a fun little song. But it was easy to sing when you're like six. I mean, how hard is it as a six-year-old to rejoice in the Lord always and again? I say rejoice. This is a fun song. And then you get about 36 and 56 and 66 and all of a sudden it's not as easy to rejoice all the time
towards your new life. We're so glad you joined us for this edition of Cornerstone Connection as Pastor Gary Hamrick teaches through the book of Philippians. If you're interested in hearing this message again or others like it, feel free to visit our website at cornerstoneconnection.cc. You can also download our mobile app so you can have these teachings with you on the go. This is a great way to keep up with Pastor Gary's studies and to have encouragement from God's Word at your fingertips. Find a link to download the app for your iPhone or Android device at our website, cornerstoneconnection.cc. Once there, simply look under the Teachings tab. You can also learn more about the church this radio ministry originates from, Cornerstone Chapel. We'd be excited to meet you if you're in the area. You'll find all you need to know about service times and other information on our website. Again, that's cornerstoneconnection.cc. We trust you've been encouraged by today's teaching from the book of Philippians. Keep reading on your own to discover many other inspiring and motivating things that apply to you today. We look forward to you joining us on our next edition of Cornerstone Connection. They say you're a wandering soul That you've got no place to go But still you know